Welcome to Something to Eat and Something to Read, a podcast for people who love reading and cooking and reading about cooking. I'm Sophie Hansen, and I'm here as always with my co-host, bibliotherapist and psychotherapist, Jermaine Lees. In this episode, we are so excited to be talking about Anne Patchett's gorgeous new book, Tom Lake, the shape it left on us, the comfort and the joy that it brought us. And then we're going to answer a really beautiful listener letter with a book and a recipe prescription. Just a quick thank you to our subscribers whose support allows us to keep recording these episodes. And if you'd like to join them and receive show notes and recipes and links and all the things that we talk about every episode, please find us over at Substack. Hey, Jermaine, how are you? Nice to see you on the uh, on the screen. <laughs> I wish it was in person. <laughs> I know, um, particularly given the book today uh, set on a farm. It would be lovely sitting on your farm with this cup of tea, but instead... Um, uh, well, it's a lovely escape because I've just been driving around the Sydney traffic and to come back and make up a tea, talk to you and talk about mm-hmm. this book that really slows us down um, will be a real treat this afternoon. Do you know, it's funny, it's a really beautiful sunny spring day here and we have a very small orchard with one cherry, well, two cherry trees. And I was mm. thinking before, oh, wouldn't it be heavenly to be sitting there? And there are some daisies on the ground sitting there recording <laughs> together. <laughs> but alas, we'll just make do with, this, with the Zooms. We will be there in our imagination, which I think is what this book does very well. So should Definitely. I give a little synopsis before please. we get into it? Yes, please. Tom Lake uh, is the story of Lara and she's a woman in her late 50s. She has three daughters who are in their 20s and her husband, Joe. And the book's set during the pandemic on the family's cherry farm in Michigan. They're all home because it's lockdown and their usual picking crew are unable to come for the harvest. So all three daughters are back and have to help uh, Lara and Joe work day in, day out picking cherries. And to pass the time, they convinced Lara to tell them about how she once dated an actor called Peter Duke, who was, I imagine, like world famous kind of, I was sort of picturing a Tom Cruise type of movie star. Were you? Or who, who was the movie I, star in your head? I had like a kind of Harrison Ford-ish, like really lovable, oh. a bit older now, roguish, maybe Paul Newman-y back in the day. He seemed very old-fashioned to me, I guess, because it was set a while ago. But anyway, yeah, I had a sort of, yeah, Harrison Ford in his heyday, in his working girl days. (laughs) Oh, it's so interesting. I'd love to hear what other people, who they pictured because, yeah, I think it was because it was the 80s. I was kind of thinking, you know, hunky action-type man. But sorry, to I digress from the story. So (laughs) Although he was a theatre actor, so a bit more Harrison Ford. I see where you're coming from. But yes, so Lara once stated him when they acted together in a theatre production of Our Town when she was in her early 20s. And I guess I should just say, because uh, I know it sort of concerned me before I picked up the book, but Our Town, the play by Thornton Wilder, is a play I hadn't heard. I think I'd heard the title, but I had no idea what it was about. And I had to yeah, I'd read a lot saying how, she started with the, it's it's Anne Patchett's favorite play. She rereads it. Speaking of rereading books for comfort, it's yes. a play she rereads every year. Apparently, this book was born from that play. You don't need to have read the play. I think she gives you enough mm-hmm. understanding of the play to see the parallels in the story. But I imagine I if you do know the play, you get an even deeper reading. That aside, what did you think about this book, Sophie? I. Really, really loved it. And I listened to it first, narrated 
so beautifully by the one and only Meryl Streep. And and that really was a treat to have her, that beautiful voice of hers and her delivery. And she really inhabited the character of Lara so beautifully, I think, especially because so much of the book is a woman telling a story. So she didn't really have to jump around different um, voices or characters, really. It was just her recounting this story and, and Meryl, my friend Meryl, did it so well. But I loved it so much mm-hmm. that I went and bought mm-hmm. the actual book afterwards because I wanted to reread and sort of immerse myself in certain parts again. And it definitely resonated really, really deeply with me. Um, I guess on a kind of, on one level, because I live on a farm and um, I feel a great contentment in that. And that idea, and, and for us lockdown, you know, it was hard in lots of ways. Our business suffered. There was, yeah, obviously it was hard in all the ways we know it was hard, but also the joy of having my kids at home all the time in our quiet little corner of the world and, I mean, we were working, not as hard as these guys picking their cherries from dusk to dawn, but that really resonated with me and that joy that you could find in having your, well, for her, she had her three adult children back at the table, which was something she never really thought she would have on a regular basis. And I could really empathise with that, even though my kids are younger, they're in their teens. And I loved that she celebrated the calm contentedness of a long marriage to a good person. It wasn't seen as something mm. boring or dull that someone was chafing to get out of or, you know, looking around and being dissatisfied with this long marriage. I think it was it's really nice to see that celebrated because often in novels it's it's the other way around. I loved how it was living with the seasons, this hard, repetitive work that especially with we don't have an orchard um, a fruit farm but I we have friends who do and it gosh it's hard and when the cherries are on you can't even scratch yourself you've just got to get them off they're such a finickety crop so I really enjoyed seeing all of these things celebrated so calmly and so nicely you know I I listened to Anne Patchett on a I think it was a New York Times book book review podcast and she was saying how she'd had a bit of criticism because there was so much niceness in the book. And I was thinking to myself, well, since when did nice become a bad thing? <laughs> you know, like it's nice to be nice. I loved this book and I can't wait to hear what you thought about it and dig into a few, pull a few threads that I think we both wanted to chat about. I agree. I absolutely loved it too. And I know a few people who've listened to it with Meryl narrating and and a daughter as well. And I can see why you then automatically want to go and buy a copy because mm. It's very immersive, isn't it? And you just kind of, there's something about spending time in her words and then in her world that um, it's nice to go back to. But, you know, different reasons it didn't resonate with me in terms of my life, obviously, like it did with you. And it made me wonder about how you found it and also how I know many of our listeners live on farms or come from the land and what it's like reading a book about people who live in the same situation as you. For me, it was just such a lovely escape because it's a world I know so little about and it was comforting because she made this, as you say, it the pandemic, I kept forgetting it was sort of like a pandemic novel because the pandemic is only there in the sense that it's why her three adult daughters are there. Mm, um, sort of the plot device, isn't it? Of, yeah. And I also read that Anne Patcher said she loves sort of trapping her characters in a domestic scene and, mm-hmm. you know, what more better trap could you have than than the lockdown? So I don't know that I'd describe it as a pandemic novel. It is just much more a family 
well, I suppose this is where it's like the play Our Town, which is meant to be a play about small town America and 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 the small things that happen in lives that add up to the huge things. I thought she just did that beautifully. There's this t- pocket of time where everyone was trapped together and she had this opportunity to reflect on her earlier life and what was so great was she reflected on it first privately with us, the reader, as well as how she reflected on it with her mm. daughters and her mm. husband. And I so sort of felt it was just really a book that talked about being present and grabbing that moment in time and holding on to it. And, you know, there's uh, Lara talks about the line from the play Our Town where she says, growing up was a terrible thing. Emily showed us that, all those moments in life we'd missed and would never get back again. And I just thought that was then this huge celebration of the everyday and Laris of capturing that moment mm. during this cherry picking season. I was surprised so, how for how much it carried me. It makes me think about that Annie Dillard quote, um, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And when I was listening to Anne talk about the book on that same New York Times podcast, she did say, you know, the things that are important in life are, are the things that are easy to overlook, you know, family and kindness, homework and lunch mm. and conversation, she says. And, yeah, and she was talking about our town and how to her it's almost a Buddhist text about staying in the present and, you know, keeping your eyes open to what you have mm. and noticing the flowers and the moon and the good small things and, to me, there's a real beauty in that. And I, I think with everything else in the world sort of spinning out of control, these are things, you know, we've talked before about these, this idea of small happinesses on the podcast, you know, things that are completely in our control. And I love that this book brings that to the fore a little bit, maybe hopefully makes us all kind of stop mm. and think about that a bit more, so much about it. But, I mean, it, it has been called, you know, a, a comfort read and a reassuring book. And, yes, it definitely is that. But it's also there's sadness in this book. There, there's really sad mm. things happen and Lara um, comes up against some big scary challenges as a young woman you know and and overcomes them and gets through them in her way so I think that narrative of it being such a comfort read sometimes might forget that it, it's not fluffy you know like she really there's a lot of meat in there as well enough time has passed for Lara as the narrator to be a bit more yeah reflective about that what do you think about that oh definitely I was thinking that as well, that I think Anne Patchett does a really good job of showing hardships alongside the joys. And if she didn't do that, it would just feel like a very syrupy, too good Mm. to be true, Pollyanna type of book. And I I guess we'll get into it later because there are themes there, aren't there, about the fears that Lara has of the world and and Mm. the difficult times she's gone through and how how I thought this is a very light touch, but she really did show that they there was existential crises all around. Well, all and three I daughters think, um, are going through that too, aren't they? They all have their own stuff going on, of course. They're young women figuring their lives out. Yes, yeah, and their lives have been, you know, put on hold. Um, they can't get on with figuring their lives out because of this pandemic, which is something, yeah, we could all relate to. I know you were saying uh, before that that can sometimes, all, all these reviews that make it, it sounds like a negative, like it's a bit light and fluffy. It doesn't really make you you think much. And was thinking this need to categorise books and people that's constant, I guess constant in reviews and that kind of thing because they're trying to put in few words to describe a book to someone. But um, it made me think a lot about, well, it's so against the grain of bibliotherapy, and it made me think a lot about this book I love by Josh Cohen 
called How to Live, What to Do in Search of Ourselves in Life and Literature. So he is an um, English professor and then he became a psychoanalyst. And so this book's all about the similarities he finds between life and, and the novel and how fiction works best when we see echoes of what our lives have in common with characters in a book. But also it works best because those characters show us what makes us unique and those characters unique. I had never thought of it in these sorts of words, but it's so true, I think, about why the self-help genre, I feel, has a very limited scope of helping us more deeply. And he is saying the self-help genre kind of wants to override this distinctiveness of ourselves and our stories and instead make quite rigidly generalised rules and a formula of how a person should be. I just think that sort of says beautifully how a work of fiction is uncategorizable until the reader reads it and brings to it whatever they're going mm. through at that time. Yeah, that, that's you put that so well. I, I agree completely. And, you know, Anne Patchett is a bookseller herself. She she has a, a, mm. a bookshop in um, Nashville, I think. You know, she's like, look, there are there are books out there for everybody. If you want to read about serial killers, there are lots of those, you know. <laughs> it's You don't have to be all things to all people. Yes, she's got such a deft hand with, with these emotions, hasn't she? So one of the first threads that I wanted to pull was um, this idea of being constrained by a role or, or not um, in the sense that she, Lara, the character, plays as when she was acting in her early 20s, she plays the role of Emily in Our Town twice, almost three times, <laughs> and also the, uh, the sort of role of, of motherhood. What do you think? Do you think she was constrained by those roles or did they do the opposite? Yeah, I know. This is such an interesting idea. I hadn't really thought of the constraining, but the thing I wondered about most during the story was how much she how easily it seemed or it wasn't explored how she adjusted to this life on the farm after this life of where she thought she would be an actress and she kind of got carried into that life, didn't she, because she got discovered for that role of Emily and it just she was this city girl and then suddenly she's this mother living on a cherry farm and I guess I was thinking what was that experience like for you? You know, you've had that exact experience, haven't you? Well, yeah, a version of it. I mean, and I will say what it was like for me in a sec, but... One the one kind of thing I think about Lara as a character, she did just slip into every role so seamlessly without kind of any kind of crises mm. of confidence or like you know she went to Tom Lake and and joined the stock the summer stock theatre she went to Hollywood and was you know on sound stages she went back to care for her grandmother and then her grandmother died and she stayed there and became a seamstress and then she moved to a farm mm. and it all just sort of happened so. She didn't seem to question it really, like as a character. And I'm not saying that's a flaw. Mm. Maybe that's a positive that she could just slip in to whatever life threw her and life threw her some pretty big curveballs. Maybe she just wasn't overthinking it. Maybe I don't know. Like, you know, for a young girl to just arrive in Hollywood like she did and and all of a sudden have to be, you know, swimming laps in front of casting directors and bikinis and things, and she just did it, Mm. you know, without it seemingly bothering her too much. So maybe that was just another change that she just slotted into I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here but I wonder if maybe we could have had a bit more on that you know she seemed to just move to the farm and it was just perfect I'm sure there were hard times yes and you kind of get a glimpse of that well the hard times is actually what she keeps private isn't it from her family Mm -hmm. and we get glimpses of as the reader we get let into some darker 
emotion she had about it. But as I'd forgotten the part about her being a seamstress or, or mender, or she, you know, mm-hmm. she used to mend the costumes, didn't she? And just so by her grandmother. I mean, there's something there about stitching herself together, isn't there, too? Yeah, that's yeah. true. She just seemed to be incredibly resilient. <laughs> like she, her boyfriend had, had cheated on her with her best friend and she'd broken her Achilles tendon, snapped her tendon and she was stuck in lying in bed doing fixing everyone's costumes and she was just like, oh, well, you know, like <laughs> it seemed like she was just sort of so stoic about everything. But I'm sure, you know, there was more going on that we don't, as she said, you know, she was controlling the narrative to, for her daughters, so... Perhaps that was why. But, yeah, for me, moving to a farm, yeah, it was not hard. I mean, parts of it were – it's always hard to move to a new place and find your, your your network and make friends. And But I moved here and then quite quickly after we started having children and so I joined mother's groups and so that definitely mm. helped. That was a really big part of it. And Tim was from here so he had a network and, no, it was – So just, just like little, Lara and Joe. Yeah, sort of, but no cherries. <laughs> There's always that spectre of um, the financial, the cash flow stress, you know, that, that, and I think particularly with a fruit crop like cherries, you know, we, orange is, grows a lot of cherries and, and a lot of the cherry trees have been pulled out over the years, but we still have um, big commercial orchards. And I understand from what I've heard from friends who work there or own them, it's so stressful because you could get one lot of hail come through, okay. one bad, you know, weather mm-hmm. situation, weather event, as they say, and that can knock your whole crop out, you know, that everything you were banking on is just mm. gone overnight. So it's stressful. It really is stressful. And I think that she does hint at that, you know, Joe seems to be perennially mm. a bit stressed, you know, always mm. working, you know, going out after dinner and checking on things. And so it, it, I think that she does make that point that, you know, farming is just so relentless. You know, there's that constant worry and there's so much you can't control. You just cannot control if a hailstorm is going to come through or if it will rain yeah. or um, do you just have to be as prepared as you can and have a safety net of money and maybe Peter Duke might buy a plot in your cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> as someone who has no experience in this world I certainly got the feeling of the financial hardship and the stress um that yeah the Joe disappearing every night into the shed and Emily their oldest daughter who's going to take over the farm and just uh how it becomes obviously it becomes your whole life like it's not just your vocation Mm. even is it it's like your it's just part of who you are and I thought she did Mm. get that across quite well Mm. And that's um, not to say every job is, you know, has its stresses and everything. I guess the thing with, with this, it, it, you live there. Like you are living, breathing, mm. you know, you never go home from work. That's home. That's where you live. That's, you know, what you do all the time. But I, I loved that. I think she portrayed that really beautifully, even though it was it's a bit of a fairy tale really, like, the, you know, the cherries yeah. and the girls and their beautiful sundresses and hats picking cherries and telling stories all day and having fried chicken, like beautiful, but definitely there were nods to the realities of it, I think, enough to kind of make it believable for me. No, I agree. And I think she did a great job of making the farm quite a character in the book too. Like the farm was the one that was kind of competing for everyone's attentions, wasn't it? Because Mm. Joe was sort of married to the farm or was his sort of first love and then Lara falls in love with him and the farm and then, of course, when Peter Duke visits the farm for the first time, he falls completely in love with it and there's such a lasting impact. And actually that I thought that was really interesting. I also read a quote um, when he first visits the farm and Joe's aunt and uncle are the owners of it that summer when they're 
in at Tom Lake and he says, when I was growing up, I used to lie in bed at night imagining what other people's families must be like. Duke said once the pie was served, cherry pie, which he told her was his favourite. I would picture their houses, their furniture, what they ate and how they spoke to one another. And what I always pictured was this. He turned to Joe. Turns out I spent my entire childhood picturing your family. And, yeah, I just thought that the, the farm really did take centre stage, I guess we could say. Yeah, it did. It did. And and she, Anne Patchett talks about the farm in Michigan that she modelled it on and, and it belongs to a friend mm. of hers. And, and it, she said it's exactly how I've described it. This farm exists and people live there and they're living a good life there. And I loved the backstory. I've been listening to her talk about the book a bit about why she chose to set it in Michigan on a cherry farm and and she went there for a press tour for her book Bel Canto I think and and was introduced to some people there and they became friends and she's that's where she learned about cherry farming and and she was talking about and she was at the airport some small airport Michigan northern Michigan flying back and at the airport everybody got a free cup of cherries um, while you were waiting for <gasps> your flight and she said she sat there and would you know have her cherries and spit the pips in, back into the cup this paper cup and if anyone from Orange Tourism is listening, please can we do that in cherry season? What a yes. beautiful thing at our local airport to give everyone a cup of cherries. Yeah. So that's my little suggestion for the tourism body. But speaking of eating, let's chat mm. about the food in this book because it didn't play a huge role, but it was significant, I think, when when it came up. And it like always, like we always talk about this, like food and just a moment at the table is such a reset for a plot, I think. And it, it's always such a great place to sort of set all your characters and spark a you know big conversation like Emily and Benny when they're talking about their plans for the future or but yeah it was all very simple food wasn't it it was extremely simple wasn't it like all those platters of cheese and mustard sandwiches that they would take with them down to pick cherries every day but then I was also thinking it it felt quite old-fashioned to me like it's one night when Joe's eating uh deviled eggs green beans and, and white fish deviled eggs and that's sort of meant to be now in our time I thought I guess that's it's those wholesome old-fashioned foods I guess that yeah the daily meal yeah. so I said the other thing I really liked was when they went to first see the farm and met Joe's aunt and uncle the the mm. ability for Maisie the aunt to magically just produce enough food for lunch which I kind of always feel is probably very stereotypical or, or probably not actually you'll tell me that when you live on a farm, you you do have a huge pantry because you don't go to the shops every day, but you can kind of make these meals expand. And, um, you know, they had fried chicken and biscuits and butter beans and corn cooked on the cob and baked apples. Like it just sort of kept, mm. kept coming. Yeah, I loved that. I loved that scene and I loved that description. I mean, to me, the idea of just whipping up fried chicken, uh, you know, anything <laughs> where you've got to heat a huge tub of oil and fried. But, you know, these cooks, I guess, they're just, it's second nature and um, biscuits, which are like scones, they'd probably have a freezer for. Mm. I mean, I'm not great at that loaves and fishes thing and I think maybe it's because we're only 25 minutes from town and we go in relatively often. But I think that the the simplicity of the food, apart from that amazing feast that Maisie whipped up, was also by necessity. Like they, they during that cherry harvest time, they would have no time to make anything fancy you know like it's it's dawn till dusk they've just got to get those cherries off the tree or they will spoil and they won't get their income so I think you know cheese and mustard sandwiches and 
Um, she goes, at one point, wondrous God, I had the presence of mind to stick a chicken in the crock pot with some onions and carrots this morning, and the kitchen garden needs only to be picked, rinsed and reassembled in order to have a salad. Emily has made bread and pie, and after a day of work, bread and pie are all we really want. You know, that's mm. I love that description, but it's true, isn't it? When you have thrown something in the crock pot or the slow cooker, God, you feel smug all day, mm. don't you? You just walk around with your shoulders back thinking, oh, I've got dinner waiting for us. <laughs> And how lovely that their daughter made bread and pie divine. That's all I'd want after a day. Actually, my daughter Alice said to me the other day, Mum, we're such an ingredient house. I said, what do you mean? She goes, oh, there's this thing on TikTok. You're either an ingredient Mm -hmm. house or a packet house. And she said, you know, I love that you make everything, but maybe we could have some more packets every now and then. I was like, no, no, I'll take being (laughs) an ingredient house, you know, because, you know, when you're so busy and you're working and you're not in Mm. lockdown in the book, obviously, so they weren't going to town a lot. You do, if you want a cake or if you want pie, you just make it. I thought the food descriptions, you know, even though there weren't enough of them for my liking, I always like lots and lots of table scenes. They were beautiful. Yeah. French toast for breakfast one morning, I remember. And yeah. Well, and that was because they've had the surplus of eggs. And I guess that was the deviled eggs, you know, because when you've got, I mean, they didn't have chickens, but they Mm. had neighbors with eggs. And, you know, you walk in sometimes and there's two dozen eggs on the bench because the chickens have just started laying again. Like this happens with us two hours are going mental at the moment. So we're giving eggs to our our neighbors. And so you do think, okay, well, we're sick of boiled eggs. Let's try deviling them or let's try French toast. Or So, you you know, you have these sort of right. seasons of glush and you like all the eggs and then you'll have weeks where they don't lay at all and you're wishing for eggs. So I guess you just have to, yeah, get inventive sometimes and then go without others. Okay, what about this idea of pass, the passing of time to smooth out the pain? We, mm. we mentioned before, you know, Lara talks a lot about some pretty heavy things that happened and, and she writes, the rage dissipates along with the love and all we're left with is a story. And I love that. I mean, mm. it can take decades, I guess, sometimes, maybe sometimes never for certain people. But I think that is true. Sometimes you are at the end of it all just left with a story and some bruises maybe, mm. some scars. Yes, like in this other line, there is no explaining the simple truth about life. You will forget much of it. The painful things you'd be certain you'd never be able to let go of, now you're not entirely sure when they happened, while the thrilling parts, the heart-stopping joys, splintered and scattered and become something else. Memories are then replaced by different joys and larger sorrows, and unbelievably, those things get knocked aside as well. Mm, There's definitely that that feeling of um, time smoothing out the edges, as the saying goes. Yes, and 100%. Although, as we've, we've sort of hinted at, Lara didn't tell the girls all the gory details. And I wanted to chat about no. that, you know, this idea of how much do we tell our children about our lives? You know, what is secret and what is private? And Anne Patchett explained so well the difference between the two. She says, a secret is something you are pointedly not telling someone, but something that's private is just yours. It mm. belongs to you. And I like that, that I think we, we will oh. as parents, as parents as mothers we will always have certain things that are private because you know it's our life and so they don't need to know at all I don't think what do you think yeah no I I thought that was a really lovely difference that keeping something private that's just for you uh is some kind of honoring of your own story isn't it taking away the merging with your family and you know it makes me think about all our talking about the importance of solitary time and being with yourself and that kind of helps keep you a bit separate from everyone else too doesn't it but yeah I I agree I I I read the same interview I think where she talks about the secrets and the 
and being private. And it, it made me think a lot about, you know, our truth, family folklore, and, you know, this idea that children was guilty of it too. You think you have your parents' origin story cemented and it's this factual thing that happened or, or that the idea they had a life before your existence sort of is, feels a bit fat, you know, you don't really think about it much or it wouldn't be that interesting until you came along. And I found it a very evocative way to discuss something that's private and just yours because of the fact that it's only shared with the reader. It again just took me back to the psychological closeness you can get with a character in a book. And they're kind of almost, I guess we're even talking about Lara now, like we know her better than her own children do or her husband mm. does. And um, so I just think it's another way of reminding us how literature is similar to psychoanalysis in that it's about making sense of our lives through story. And as, as Josh Cohen writes in that book, what is reading a novel if not opening our mind's ear to other voices? Mm. The other thing I thought it also explored was how in different seasons of our lives, different versions of the story come up or are re-edited or, or they deepen, particularly as children go through their own seasons. The story might take on a deeper resonance or more importance or more detail. You know, there was so much of Lara's and Peter and Joe's story that she'd never fleshed out and now the girls were kind of ready to hear a bit more of it perhaps at mm. this time. I think so. I mean, obviously they had the time. They had months of weeks of picking and, and nothing else to do. But And I know I also really liked how Anne talked about motherhood or Lara, the character, about how sometimes, you know, when they were little, her children, would she'd think they might just swallow her whole, you know, she'd sit for a minute and they were all mm. on top of her. And and I think that sometimes as a mother you do want to keep certain things for yourself that I think that's okay to do, you know, because you, mm. you're constantly kind of giving, especially when your children are younger, it's nice to keep things for yourself. Yes, I, I thought that was all really beautiful. And interesting that Anne, I didn't realise, she's not a mother. She she chose not to have children, she said in interviews, um, because she didn't feel she had the energy to do to be a writer and a mother. But she, mm. goodness, she writes about, um, well, that's the mark of a good writer, I guess. She writes about from the perspective of motherhood so poignantly, so beautifully. So she's, mm. yeah, she's incredibly talented. Okay, and so before we kind of start wrapping up and move on to our letter, the last thing I wanted to pull out, I'm not sure if you've got anything more, but um, this idea of, of content and just being happy in that moment. And I loved, and especially in her relationship to Joe, who I just love how much she loves him. It's so gorgeous. And she writes, mm. for so many years I have kissed him. For so many years I have not kissed another soul and there is a deep and abiding comfort in this. And as I said at the top, mm. I think it's just nice that she is celebrating that, you know, and the fact that they have made their peace with the fact that they will always be overloaded with work on the farm, that the seasons are unpredictable, they never get a break really, but they're such a team, you know, they're such a team together moving forward through all those challenges together and I thought that was really nice. Yeah, I felt the same way that they really were very solid as a team and it was very uncomplicated. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and he didn't seem to mind that, like, any of this stuff that, you know, she used to go out with one of the most famous men in the world and is spending weeks mm. telling her or days telling her daughters about it. He's like, yeah, whatever. You know, he's very um, secure in all of that, I think. <laughs> yeah, he was very grounded, wasn't he? He was like a very yeah. salt of the earth kind of mm. man. No pretension, just, yeah. No. And I wonder if that kind of made it easy, easier for Lara to review even those harder times in her life was through the stability that she has in her midlife. Um mm with Joe 
But I agree, it was lovely to read about a a marriage that continues to grow rather than, you know, a turning point. Um, Yes. Yeah. (laughs) The the other themes, I suppose, we sort of touched on at the beginning, but but how Anne Patchett does very nicely or subtly remind us about the world we actually do live in and, you know, the, the talk about climate change that she did so well with just how her daughters spoke about the fear of the future, whether or not they were going to have children, whether or not the farm would survive. And Joe and Lara really couldn't handle those conversations. Mm. Yet they, they, they are the real conversations now, aren't they, of actually our children may make very different choices or have a very different outlook on the future than, than we had 20 mm. years ago. No, well, just that, that, and that is really hard for Joe in particular to think that maybe there won't mm. be another generation. Like he just took it for granted that there will be the next generation of his daughters and their family continuing the farm and and yeah. that's a big change. That's a big prospect of change to get, to get for him to get his head around, isn't it? And then Lara with the thought of not having grandchildren, you know, the same sort of thing of this it can't end with us. I guess there's that fear. I guess this, this whole thing is about family, isn't it, and longevity and the, like, the generations continuing mm-hmm. on. All those daughters were named after very important people in their lives, um, as you find out when you read the book. So there's something about continuity as well in this book, isn't there? It's a snapshot in time, but it yeah. really is trying to talk about ongoing continuity, the same word. <laughs> and, again, just on their relationship, even with that, it's then together, isn't it? Like she says, Joe and I have taught our daughters how to grade a plum and pick a stone from a goat's hoof and make a pie crust, but I fear we've taught them nothing of the world. To how sheltered they maybe are from the realities of the world, even though they live and their livelihood comes from the realities of of uh, climate. Yeah, something slipped through there. Some darkness slipped through there that they'd missed, I felt. Uh, I agree. And I think... And that is another kind of particular quirk of farming families, you know, especially generational ones, that the idea of selling the farm is just not even to be countenanced, you know. It's going to stay in our family. It's going to, you know, for better or worse. And and sometimes, you know, it might not be the right financial decision. I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I can't bear the thought of us selling this place where we live, which is so much part of us and our family. But, yeah, like I think for a farming family it's just inconceivable that you would have to sell, you know, and move on. And for Joe, he's he really, that's a shock to him that there's potentially that prospect of the farm leaving the family's grasp, I think. It's not, it's not greediness. It's it's just this, you just assume that this is our family's place and we're going to put everything into it and then hand it on to the next generation. And, um, I think that was. Yes. Well, I think he also, too. because it's always been hard, hasn't it? Like he actually saved it for his aunt and uncle. Mm. He helped them with the finances. So he doesn't expect it to just easily go on but it's almost like nothing could stop it going on even as hard as it gets and this Mm. this fear that his daughters have about the future of of the planet sort of really stumps him doesn't it oh yeah I think poor Joe he's they've got a lot to you know it's not all kind of daisies and cherry pies and swims in the lake you know like (laughs) it's it's definitely there's some big issues for the for the characters to to deal with but beautiful I absolutely loved it and I'm ashamed to admit this is the first Anne Patchett book that I have ever read and I will be going back to I think I might go back to the Dutch house next I haven't Mm. I'm not sure um yeah I I loved it the Dutch house is yeah, I actually go to her personal essays as well. 
her essays uh, about life and family are also beautifully written okay. and very evocative. But, yeah, the okay. Dutch house is a good one to go to after this. Okay. It's very good. much sibling-based. But, yes, no, you've got okay. a lot to look forward to. Well, now seems like a good time to go to our letter. Yes. I'll read it. Hi, Sophie and Jermaine. Always love your podcast. Thank you. I collected podcasts for years and hardly ever got around to listening to them, but yours is one I have kept up with right from the first episode. Lovely to know. Yeah. I've always been a keen reader, although when I was working in the business with my husband, there wasn't much time, so I would always have a big pile of books to take with me on holidays. When my husband died suddenly almost two years ago, I found I couldn't read, just couldn't get my head straight to concentrate. I'm much better now, although I can still find myself unable to get through a book almost in one sitting the way I used to. I was also a big fan of Gift from the Sea. I've read it several times and given it as a gift to many women I know whose lives are full with husbands and children needing some solitude to reconnect with themselves. I thought it might be a good read for me now, but I found it simply highlighted the difference between optional solitude, which is set against the hectic background of marriage, family and career, and the subsequent return to the company of loved ones. My husband was always self-employed and several times in the year, in the earlier years of our marriage, he encouraged me to travel alone, and I did, and I found it stimulating and refreshing. Now I'm about to venture forth on my first big trip alone and I'm realising how very different it is from those earlier trips. He won't be taking me to the airport or greeting me with open arms when I return. And no doubt, whenever I arrive at a new destination, I'll pick up my phone to let him know I've arrived safely and to hear his news. I wonder if I'll ever stop doing that. I've planned the trip so I'll be meeting up with people I know and love from time to time, so my solitariness will be interrupted, and I think that will be welcome. I know that over the last two years, I've learned to be with myself and my feelings, and that will help me manage the inevitable moments when grief, that shapeshifter that comes from nowhere, wells up in me. I'll be visiting some of my favourite places again, deliberately to remind myself that all the beauty is still out there, and that even when I find myself profoundly sad, there is still joy to be had if I'm open to it, and I fully expect to simultaneously feel profoundly sad. On the subject of food, I struggle to cook for myself now. I used to love to cook, and my husband took to the kitchen enthusiastically when he retired, so our meals were often adventurous experiments. And food was a huge thing when we travelled. I have literally hundreds of photos of him across the table from me in so many restaurants in so many wonderful places. My lack of interest in cooking has at least encouraged me to get comfortable eating in restaurants alone, so I'm thankful that shouldn't be a problem for me on my trip. It's been great to listen to your podcast about eating and cooking alone and I've explored a couple of the books you discussed and enjoyed them. What it's all highlighted for me though is that while I certainly eat plenty and probably more than is good for me, I've lost my love of cooking and eating really, really great food. It's so intimately connected with my lost love. My aloneness is no longer a choice I make sometimes to sustain myself. It's a reality I didn't ask for and have to live with. 
while regaining that love of cooking and eating really well would no doubt nourish me both physically and emotionally it would also honor that beautiful connection we had how can I do that I'm hoping my trip will help I'm sure to find wonderful food and may even return to one or two restaurants we loved while traveling but I'm apprehensive about what will happen when I return home Can you recommend something for me to read that might help me reconcile all this and find a way to nourish myself in all the ways that are needed? And Sophie, I'd love a suggestion for something delicious that could help me get my kitchen mojo back and maybe give me some freezable leftovers. I'm sorry this is such a long letter. I really appreciate what you're doing in your podcast. Thank you both. I just thought this was such a beautiful letter and a very wise letter as well. And I can't mm. wait to hear what your food choices are and then I'll I'll talk about my book choices. Yeah, well, firstly, thank you so much to our letter writer. It, it really, gosh, you articulated so well what I, I feel like a lot of people, you know, must experience in, in various stages of their life and this idea of feeling sad but also joyful to be travelling again and 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 this idea of cooking for yourself. And we talked about this last episode, you know, seeing your needs and recognizing them and 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 cooking with joy for yourself and i think that's you know not always easy to do and and so instead of recommending you know a full meal to make what i'm thinking is uh like a number of little flavor bombs you know sauces and crunchy things and little condiments that you can have in the fridge that can pep up a simple simple meal and i, I talk about this a lot because i feel like we eat with our eyes and, you know, I love to have lots of different colours and flavours and textures and pickles and nuts and all sorts of things on my plate. And I think if you've got some fun things like that to draw from, then, you know, lunch or dinner is so much easier. And you're not having the same thing every day. You can sort of riff on it, but it's it's quite fun. So I would suggest maybe put aside an hour a week if you can afford to do that and make yourself two, two or three flavour bombs. So, I'm going to share, I'll send you a letter writer, but also I put in our show notes, my current obsession, whipped miso butter. Oh my God, it's the easiest thing to make. And that with some good bread, some pickles, oh my God, or stuffed into a baked potato with some spring onion salsa on top. Just so good. So, you know, make make a thing of that. Put in the fridge, just scoop a little bit out when you need it. Pickled chilies, which are so good. And the pickling liquid seems to kind of deactivate the heat a little bit over time. So don't worry if you think that's going to be too much for you. They just keep this beautiful warm heat and a tang and a crunch. And then a carrot miso and orange dressing and a savoury granola that I sprinkle over my lunch bowls and salads and things. So four flavour bombs, which will take you under an hour to make. But what they will do is give you all sorts of options um, for a lunch, for lunches or meals for a whole week ahead. And in the show notes, I'm going to do a little, like a whole map of how to use all of them and get the most out of them. So yeah, flavour bombs, colour, crunch, flavour, texture, things that you can just grab. And even if you've got a good loaf of bread, or maybe what I do is I cook up a heap of, um, I love quinoa or any brown rice or grain, have a heap of that in the fridge and you can just scoop a bit out boil an egg, open a can of tuna, put your pickled chilies and your miso carrot orange dressing in your savoury granola, you have yourself a really yummy lunch in minutes, you know. So that's what I'm going to suggest for our letter writer, just colour and crunch and just brightness in your food, like joy in assembling yourself a little treat for lunch or for dinner every day, knowing that you've got this arsenal of good things in the fridge ready to pep it up. So I hope that will bring a bit of joy and and not feel like you've just made one big casserole that you've got to eat every day for five days or freeze. You know, that's a bit boring. So hopefully, yeah, 
color, texture, flavor, and just having fun with it, playing around and a bit of a choose your own adventure. So that's my suggestion. <laughs> Reminds me of um, the small joys we've talked about before in life, yes. but the, the little bomb of flavor or color and there's something about condiments, isn't there, about oh. from having a friend. God, years ago at university, who was just we used to make jokes about his love of condiments, and I think he was onto something at you know, the ripe old age of eighteen. But <laughs> the, you feel quite special when you have the special relish or the special pickles, oh, sure. or you know, your ham and cheese toasty tastes a lot better with a relish, doesn't it? Totally. And it's taken me forty years to work that out. <laughs> And the great thing is that, I mean, I'm all for supporting clever pickle makers and small producers and stuff, but also it's so easy to do this for yourself, you know, especially if you're not making vast quantities and you have to bother with sterilising jars. Don't do that because you keep them in the fridge. You know, it's actually to make a quick pickled chilies and radish, it's the work of 10 minutes, you know. By the time you've heated up the, the pickling liquid, you've chopped up the veggies, packed them in a jar, done, you know. And speaking of small joys, I said this last time, I, I do always like to make myself a yummy little lunch plate. And I, I've been, while well, I was listening to Meryl Street read me Tom Lake, it was my big treat. I'd sort of just put 15 minutes and I'd sit outside in the sun with my headphones in and just sit and listen to Meryl mm. read me this book and eat my yummy lunch. And small joy that's just so within reach, you know. we just got to carve out these. It's not a huge chunk out of your work day, but gosh, it makes yeah. a difference when you sit back down at your desk, I think. Oh, what Definitely. It makes it very conscious. I think it's just, yeah, making it very conscious um, really helps with that, doesn't it? Mm. Now, I want to hear your books. What have you got for us or for our letter writer and the rest yeah. of us? <laughs> yeah, well, first I just wanted to say to our letter writer, I feel a kindred spirit in uh, her having um, read Gift from the Sea all those years ago and having gifted it as well. It is, And it's been really lovely receiving a whole lot of messages recently from people who've decided to buy it since uh, our last episode and have then subsequently bought copies to give to friends. It is definitely one of those books and I completely see why it's not the right book for her at the moment. Optional solitude, as she says, in the, with the backdrop of the busyness of life is, um, is a very different mm. experience to the solitude she has at the moment. I, I just thought this was, uh, was quite in awe of her courage to... Um, also be able to pack herself up and and I know she says she's done a lot of travelling on her own and he really helps support that. But I think she's so aware that this is going to be a, a time of of joy and of profound sadness as well. And and I wonder if it's also going to be for her a bit of a, a trip of saying goodbye to that marriage in a way or the, 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 the coupledom and saying hello to how is she going to be back in her own her own person again or and and so with that in mind is how I've chosen two books today <laughs> two books whether that be because I felt a long letter deserved two books or whether <laughs> one's one's a memoir and one's a novel but anyway the first book I've chosen is uh Deborah Levy's last book in her living autobiography trilogy mm-hmm. called Real Estate I don't know if you've Read any I haven't, Deborah Levy but, before? Oh, no, but everyone's must. talking about her at the moment because she must have a new book out because I keep seeing her name pop up yeah. all over the place. So, yes, I've got to get into that too. <laughs> yeah, well, she does. She has a new fiction book out called August Blue, which mm-hmm. I love, but it's very dreamlike. She's quite psychoanalytic in the way she um, writes and thinks and uh, so it's sort of not for everyone. It's had mixed reviews. Her fiction 
I find can be quite distancing in that way. But her living autobiography series, uh, things I don't know or things I I can't remember the titles now probably, but the third one, real estate, she did them in each decade in her 40s, 50s and 60s. And in her 40s, her marriage is ending. And so that book's about sort of a midlife ending of a marriage. And in her last one, real estate, she's turning 60 and it's all about taking ownership of the deeds of her own life. So it's really about cementing herself in her own personhood at this chapter of life. It's about her trying to find a new way of of living both internally and in the world. So there's a bit of traveling in there. She moves to a She's English. She moves to a tiny apartment in Paris. It's all about her finding ways to um, physically and emotionally nourish herself on her own. She also quotes from other works of literature. There's this one quote I thought resonated, there is nobody that can make you happy. You must take care of this matter yourself. So, yes, I thought this sort of filled both the establishing a solitary life of one's own as well as uh, traveling around the world. The fiction book I chose is The Little Paris Bookshop by Nina <laughs> George. I really love this book. I read it years ago. It's set in France and it's actually sort of almost how I oh, I started thinking about bibliotherapy in a way because it's all about this a man who has a bookshop on a barge and he prescribes books to people who can tell what they're feeling and then tells them to read this book he's actually suffering his own huge loss. And this book is really explores grief and finding yourself again and understanding your past and your life choices. He um, ends up moving the barge down the Seine River down through France. It again, and it, it's sort of a misfit of characters and they've all kind of suffered their own losses. They're all trying to work out who they are on their own. And the landscape plays a big part in this book too. And I'll just read this. And the whole book's really about emotional connection to yourself and how to connect back to others. And um, just one quote, down south they listen to the sea in order to understand that laughing and crying sound the same and that the soul sometimes needs to cry to be happy. So the prose is very lyrical and um, Mm. visual and sometimes you're swimming in unwept tears and you'll go under if you store them up inside. So it's Mm. a very gentle read as well. Mm. And also in Europe. Yeah, I loved this book. I read it not too long ago for the first time and it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that's a wonderful prescription. So I hope if I let a writer hasn't read it yet, I hope you enjoy it. If you have, might be a good little reread before your trip perhaps. <laughs> well, we, um, we've come to the end of this episode, I think, and I hope yeah. that you guys have enjoyed listening and coming along on this little trip about Tom Lake with us. Even if you haven't read it, I hope that there's been a few little things to think about in there and that you might go and borrow or get yourself a copy. Is there anything else that we needed to share, Jermaine, before we sign off? Yes, well, we're always looking for letters. And uh, if we do use your letter, then we love giving you a case of wine, Highgate wine from single vineyard sellers who very generously donate that to us or to our letter writers so don't wait for us to do a shout out just please um, message us through instagram or our email or through our newsletter on substack we'd yep. love to hear from you yes thank you and thank you to christy reading for patching up our podcast all our 
fumbles and stumbles and delays and things. We appreciate you and to Smith and Jones for the beautiful music. Jermaine, thank you so much for reading and chatting with me again. And we will be back soon with our next book, which is also in Europe, actually. Could be another good one for our traveller. Duck à l'Orange by Karina May, mm-hmm. which I just finished and it's just a beautiful romance and I can't wait to. We haven't really done a just a pure, delicious romance for ever, I don't think. No, I think you're right. I'm really looking forward to escaping into that kind of book now as well, actually. To mix the romance of the food is very convenient, isn't it? Yes, I know. There'll be lots we can cook from this. But for now, I'm going to go make a, well, I'm not going to make a cherry pie because we haven't got cherries, but I feel like making pie, so I might go do that. We will be setting all the links and stuff in the show notes. And Jermaine, thank you and have a lovely evening. Yeah, you too, Sophie. Bye. Sometimes I get to thinking I ought to take up drinking Just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on the highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a small town woman trying to find my way in a lonesome world and i ain't a whiskey girl i'm just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world Just a 